Well, good evening. If you were with us this morning, uh, though most of you, you weren't because you all came down from camp, but I would just start it off by saying how convicted I've been the beginning of this year uh, with many of the messages that have been preached uh, from the pulpit here. Messages on not being conformed to the world, messages on giving our life as a sacrifice to God, uh, messages on living a reality instead of hypocrisy, uh, not only on Sunday, um, but also Wednesday night, as we've been going through Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount and things like that, there's just this entire Or are we will of God? Uh, this hymn is exactly the point. Um, is our mind the mind of Christ? Is the love of Christ filling me and pouring over? Um, so much of that has, has caused me just to, if you haven't uh, been with us, all the messages have been recorded, and I would highly recommend uh, going back and listening to them, um, from Bob Fouts and James to Ken Daughters and, and John and Romans um, to Barney Jamarski, uh, just phenomenal uh, messages that our brothers have, have brought. Um, and as I confessed this morning, I don't know that it is either, one, I have wandered farther away from the Lord than I have before, or two, I am noticing things more now than I had before. Uh, I hope it's the latter. I hope this is a, a God continually to work in my life and not the former of I've wandered so far. <clears throat> in this thread tonight, what we want to look at, um, we're going to spend our time in Luke chapter 6. Uh, if you want to get started, we're going to begin in Luke 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 12. Um, and we're going to move around from there. Um, so this is going to be a little different than messages I've preached in the past. Uh, I like to just stay in one passage, um, but we're going to move around to, to make a couple points. And really the thought behind this, as it was this morning... What we saw was, is there something that we did not understand about the word of God or the character of God that has caused us to doubt God, God's goodness, God's will for our lives, God's purpose? Um, has that puffed us up with pride to where we just, we decide we're going to do what we want to do no matter what? Um, and we're just going to hope that God blesses it. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at this idea of perhaps we have maybe thought we understood what God was saying. But in reality, when we look back, maybe it's going to shock us a little bit to see what the Lord is actually saying and, and stir us and try to get us in the right mind. And the, the, verse, the, the verses that come to mind, obviously, are Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're going to try to renew our mind this evening. Uh, we're going to try to see if our mind is lining up with the mind of God. And if it's not, we're going to pray that it would be transformed, that it would line up with the mind of God. Another verse that comes to mind that was delivered here um, is this verse from James, that we ask in faith believing, that we not be, the word that they use is double-minded, and it has this idea of being two-souled. So in a sense, you have one soul asking for one thing and another soul asking for another thing, and there's this constant wavering back and forth. They're not on a sure footing. Um, we want to we be with the right mind knowing what we're asking um, from God. 
So in Luke chapter 6, it's an interesting portion as we begin in verse 12 uh, to just to set the context for what follows. Um, the Lord Jesus previously had just uh, called certain men to follow him. Uh, he has just uh, gone on the Sabbath, um, had an, an issue with, with the Pharisees, <clears throat> and had just healed a man on the Sabbath. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he, day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And we're going to stop there. <clears throat> so looking at this portion, the one, a couple of things we, we want to notice, um, just the context of what's going on. A lot of people, when they see the um, blessed be ye or blessed are you who are poor, um, they immediately tie this passage with Matthew, um, chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But as you can see, when you read the passage, there's maybe only three things that line up. And then after that, it's fairly different. Uh, he does use some of the same parables later on. Um, but in this one, we have blessings, we have woes. We don't have woes in the Sermon on the Mount. In this one, we have talk of reward. We don't have talk of reward uh, when it's speaking of these things in Matthew. And Matthew will speak of the Lord Jesus being in a, in a mountain and speaking out over the people. In this one, it's very specific, and it says that Jesus came on a level plain and spoke to them. So there's things like this in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Sometimes we do this thing where we like to harmonize the Gospels and, and fit them together in a nice, neat way. But really, it's not so much as what fits together as what's different. Um, the one question I always ask myself when I get to a Gospel is, why is this in this Gospel and not in others? And I find that there's much more benefit to that type of question than to try to figure out what's the same in the Gospels. Um, so, just some things to keep in mind. In verse 12, it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. <clears throat> we could really just meditate on this verse um, all evening, what, what this actually means, what this entails. Um, I don't know how many of us have spent all night in prayer for anything. 
um, we've spent days in prayer. Uh, when we have the week of prayer here, um, you know, it, it starts at 8 o'clock in the morning and we go till 8 o'clock at night. And it's this day-long time of prayer. Um, but we need to pray. The Lord Jesus had the mind of God. The Lord Jesus was perfectly in tune with the will of God. And yet before he makes the decision, he spends all night in prayer, in communion with God. And I think we have to ask ourselves, if it was necessary for the Lord Jesus to do it, how much more necessary for us? And it's interesting that the first thing that we're going to take lightly in our spiritual lives is prayer. Um, we're going to commit to, to reading two chapters a day. We're going to commit to being at the meetings. But the one thing that is probably going to lack in our lives is, is prayer. Uh, the one thing that the Lord did not lack in his time here on the earth was communion with his Father. And I think that needs to be something that already, as we're renewing our mind this evening, does this look like us? Do we look like the Lord? Or is this totally different than if somebody were to look at us, what we're really like? And so what we see, we want to be like. And that's the goal. And we're going to try to figure out in this portion how many things make us different. And why maybe our spiritual life is so difficult. So the one thing, the Lord spends all night in prayer. And when, he came, when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he had also named apostles. So <clears throat> this is a real interesting thing. God has a plan to spread the gospel throughout the entire world to evangelize the entire world. That everyone, uh, in order to be saved, to have, have life in Christ, to be part of the church, to be born again, is going to need to hear this gospel. And there's people scattered, scattered throughout the globe. So what's this plan going to entail? And we see that after an all-night communion, all-night prayer with his father, the decision was he was going to pick 12 men. And the 12 men that he chose were, as far as we can tell, just regular people. Uh, these weren't the, the upper class. These weren't the priests. These weren't anybody to, to write home about. They were from a region that was kind of looked down upon. Um, you have Judas Iscariot in that group that was a traitor. And the Lord knew he would be a traitor. So it's very interesting that this plan to evangelize the world is 12 men to do the job. Um, we would take a different approach. Does this line up? When we go to do something for the Lord, what does it look like? Um, well, first we've got to make sure we have funding. Then we have to make sure the days line up. Uh, then we've got to make sure that uh, we're going to have enough people to be there to staff the event. Um, what are we even going to do for the event? Uh, there are so many things that we feel need to be put in place before something starts. But what we, re what we need to realize is we need to start with the right people, the right men, the right women. I think in this case, this is what the Lord is doing. And we can tell from this point, these are men that in the book of Acts said they've turned the world upside down. Um, does this line up with our way of thinking? Uh, you know that the 12 uh, apostles, uh, they, they are just an interesting group. It's amazing how little is spoken of so many of them. Um, it's amazing what is accounted of some of them in certain passages. Uh, and there's a lesson in, in, in these men, and there's certain um, historical documents that give clues to what each one did. And uh, it, it's worth looking into. But this is the plan of God. Twelve men to be chosen. 
So as Jesus has chosen this 12, so we remember that as he's walking and as he's doing these, he's healing people, he, he's, he's casting out demons, he's doing all sorts of miraculous things, there's a large group that's following him. And out of this large group, he calls these 12 men to come apart from this group to be close to him. So he's walking and he says, he comes down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. So what's interesting in this portion, as we see the people that are going to flock to Jesus are people that need help. People that have nowhere else to go. People that are have tried everything and, and this is the, the last and final straw and they're willing to do whatever it takes that they would be healed, that they would be taken care of. These are not the first people that we like to go talk to about the gospel. We want to talk to people that are in some way, shape, or form like us, co-workers, friends, neighbors. Um, these are not those type of people. These are people that need help. These are people that are looking for an answer to their problems. So as Jesus is healing all of these people and all of these, this huge crowd has gathered around him, he decides to take this opportunity to deliver a message. And we're going to see that this message uh, ran countercultural at the time uh, it was given, and it runs extremely countercultural uh, to the time that we're in today, especially in America. Verse 20, it says, In turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. <clears throat> What's interesting is that this is the, almost, almost the same thing that comes up in Matthew chapter 5. And it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And people say, well, this means the same thing. And I would say, I'm not so sure. Um, because there is a direct parallel between the blessings here and the woes later. And the woe comes to those that are rich. Um, we don't take that to mean rich in spirit. We take that to be those that are rich, those that have funds, those that have money. What's interesting here is that this, this blessings seem the complete opposite of what we want in life. We don't want to be poor. We don't want to be hungry. We don't want to weep. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be excluded. Um, all of these things actually go completely against our nature. And yet God says that there's a blessing in them. So I want to put this before you, and you need to answer this honestly between you and the Lord. Do you agree with what the Lord is saying? Is this something that you desire in life, to be poor? If you're like me, the answer is no. I don't desire to be poor. So what is he really saying? Is he saying, you know, um, you know the person that is, is lazy and doesn't do anything and doesn't want to get a job and lives on the side of the road and he's blessed? I don't think so. And I think the real key comes in this verse later on when it talks about for the son of man's sake. And I really feel like that's a key that's going to unlock these passages here. Blessed are the poor for the son of man's sake. That's when the blessing comes. When people choose to be poor, that others might be blessed for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
This doesn't mean be frivolous with your money and just do nothing and be poor and be happy. This is the idea that it is a responsible, willing choice that you are going to make that others might be blessed, that others might hear the gospel, that others might receive Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, when the Lord blesses us with funds, with money, do we treat that as, now I can be comfortable? Now I can relax. Now I can take a vacation. Is that our first instinct? Or is our first instinct to get some money and say, okay, Lord, where does this go? I don't want to keep it. I want it to be put to work. I want it to go to something that's going to matter for eternity. So this is the, this is the thing that's, that's coming up here. And I, what's interesting about this word poor is we kind of have in our idea um, the, the, the blue-collar worker that, you know, isn't really making a lot of money, just making ends meet, but barely getting by. Paycheck to paycheck type poor. Um, it's interesting that there's a word for that in the Greek, but it's not this one. This one is a different word, and this word is tokas. And this word has the idea of one that is destitute, one that is crouched down, that is begging for funds. <clears throat> so in our mind, we still think of this idea of, of work, of establishing, that even though they're poor, you know, they're still trying. Um, the word actually is an emphasis on this person is completely dependent upon someone else's generosity. Do we treat God that way? Do we wake up in the morning and realize that we are really destitute without God? That every morning we're, we're in this position where we have nothing. And we go before the Lord God and we say, I need help. I need the spirit. I need wisdom. I need grace. I need mercy. I need all of these things just to get through today. This idea of what's interesting is this always comes to mind when I think of um, the widow and Elijah. So Elijah comes to this widow, and this widow um, is in the time of famine, and he says, you know, would you make me a cake? And she is upset, and she says, I'm making a cake for me and my son. It's the last that we have, and after that, we're just going to die. And Elijah says, well, make it for me first. And we think that's, you know, but in a sense, he's saying, give to God first. So she does. And lo and behold, they go back, and there's more there. And I don't think he filled it up to the top and, you know, gave her a big cruise of oil. I think that every time they went in there, there was just enough for the day. Just enough to open it up and scrape and make what they needed for today. And then, you know, you wake up tomorrow, and there's just enough for today. And there's just enough for today. And there's just enough for today. This is the mentality as believers that we are to have. Um, one of the reasons why we are to have it is because it's what the Lord Jesus was like. Um, so everything we're to do, be doing is, is for a purpose, and this purpose is to be like Christ. There's a, a, a verse that you all know. Um, it's this idea, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It was a choice. It was something that the Lord Jesus was willing to do that we would be blessed. Are we willing to be like the Lord? The Lord was rich. The Lord is the owner of everything. The Lord is the creator of everything. But for our sakes, he was willing to become poor. It's this choice that's being made. 
Do we have the mindset to make that same choice for the Lord? Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. I don't like being hungry, as you can tell. And nobody else likes when I'm hungry either, because I get a bad attitude when I'm hungry. But there's this idea that uh, comes to mind. You say, what's what's an example of, of hungering now for the sake of the Son of Man? There's a passage in, in John chapter 4. Uh, you don't have to turn there. We'll, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. There's a passage in, in John chapter 4 that deals with this woman at the well. And he's speaking with this woman. She goes back into town. And um, this whole time, Jesus is weary from his travels. Uh, he's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. Uh, this woman goes back into town to bring the entire town out to him. And while the entire town is coming out to him, the disciples are trying to get the Lord Jesus to spend time for himself to eat. And this is what takes place in verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not, this is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. It gives this idea that there's more to life than satisfying our own desires. There's more to life than satisfying what we want. Was the Lord Jesus hungry? Yes, he was hungry. But he had bigger things to do, to do the will of his Father. And we see the interesting thing in that is uh, we know the fields white for harvest, the, the idea of a fruit being almost overripe. Uh, It needs to be plucked right away. You can't wait and take care of yourself and not go and harvest this fruit. And one of the things that's interesting is that if they were sitting up, say, by a well, and the people were coming out of the city wearing white garments because it's hot in that region, um, it would look like a white field coming to them, ready to partake. So this may be like this word picture that the Lord is using uh, to make his point that there are things that God has put in our place that we are to do. Do we put those aside to take care of ourselves first? It can be as simple as prayer. And we battle this every morning. I'm running late. I need to get out of the house. I need to go do something. And I don't really have time to pray. We're coming to meeting and we know there's a certain time that we have to leave but we just, for some reason, we cannot leave on time because I need to take care of something for myself first. Simple things. Just something where we're choosing to take care of ourselves before seeing what the will of God is, what God would have us to do. This is this idea, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Um, Nobody likes to cry. Nobody likes to weep. Nobody likes to mourn. But there's this idea of 
the recognizing the sincerity and the severity of the moment. Uh, oftentimes, we like to make light of things, um, things that have drastic implications. If you watch any television show on a mainline um, network, that's all they do is try to make fun of serious situations that are extremely sinful, extremely damaging, and we just think it's hilarious. One of the, the passages that comes to mind <clears throat> with this is, is uh, the Lord Jesus as he goes and he's uh, in the triumphal entry and about to look over Jerusalem. Um, it makes this comment, and it's, I think it's only in, in, in Luke, and it's in Luke 19. It says this, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Uh, the Lord Jesus was one that understood the severity of things. There are people around us every day that uh, commit a sin that probably we don't even notice. But if we did, we would realize that that's a sin that they will have to pay for. That if they have to pay for that sin, it's worth weeping over. Um, to think of somebody suffering in hell for all eternity is something to weep over. It's something to mourn over. And it motivates us that it would not happen. <clears throat> so it continues. He says, Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. So you have this idea of men hating you. Now, obviously, you don't want to be a jerk. And that's the reason why people hate you. Um, you want people to hate you for the Son of Man's sake, that there's something about your life. And it's very um, easy. If, if you live a spiritual life in front of people, there is automatically going to be this desire to ostracize you, to, to dirty you. Um, the media and people in general love nothing more than taking a figure that is prominent, uh, that has done well, that has pretty much stayed clean, and dirtying them. There's entire groups that their entire job as investigative journalist is to go and try to slander character. People, they love that because it puffs them up. The minute you try to bring somebody down, you're just trying to step on them to lift yourself up. That's what we tend to do. The Lord Jesus goes beneath that he would exalt the person every time. It's interesting that when we read portions like this, it will often speak of the Lord uh, turning, and it says looking up and seeing the people. Um, David McKay always points this out. Jesus always looks up and sees people. He's not never looking down on people. It's interesting, just the way that the scripture points it out. He's always looking up. He's always trying to lift up people. <clears throat> so this interesting thing, are you, you know, this is, again, countercultural. Um, we don't live in such a way to be ostracized. That, that is normally not our intention. Um, but if we choose to live for Christ, we will be. Um, this is a guarantee. This is something that comes up 
in, uh, in John chapter 15. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. <clears throat> so we don't go around trying to get people to hate us. Well, we act like Christ and it happens automatically. It's something that just takes place naturally. There's always this desire to try to slander a person that others might be puffed up. We have this innate desire in ourselves as well. And we call it gossip. Sometimes we gossip with people that uh, we're trying to get a better footing in somebody's eyes. So we gossip with people that they'll think better about us and worse about this other person. What's interesting here is that there's a reward for those that are willing to be poor, to hunger, to weep, and to be hated. It's not for no reason. If you're willing to do it for the Son of Man's sake, it says, Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. <clears throat> this idea of leaping for joy... We don't recognize it now. This isn't something we receive. This is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, if they were obedient, they received blessings at the current time. Ours, if we are willing to obey, we get blessings later. But the blessings are eternal. The blessings last forever. They're never taken away. It's something worth working towards. It's not something that we're just sacrificing for no reason. Uh, the verse that, that comes up with this is in Hebrews chapter 12, as many of you have memorized it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's this idea that as we've gone through these blessings, we've seen the Lord live these things out. This isn't something that the God is asking us to do that he himself did not do perfectly. Um, he was willing to go to the cross for the joy that would come after the cross. Uh, are we willing to suffer now in this life for the joy that it will be in the day we see our Savior? Or are we not? Have we misunderstood what God really wants for our life. Uh, the American idea of Christian Christianity is to go to church, raise a happy family, live in a comfortable home, take nice vacations, and pray before your meals. That's not what we see here. It's a choice to be poor. It's a choice to hunger. It's a choice to weep. It's a choice to be hated. 
that one day we can stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice with him. There's a psalm that kind of encompasses um, what's being talked about, and it's Psalm 126. Psalm 126, it's a very short psalm. Um, there are certain hymns written about it. <clears throat> but it has this idea of laboring for the future blessing. Psalm 126, um, this is a, a, a psalm that was written uh, by the saints that returned from captivity. So they return from captivity, and they have money, they have grain, but they have not planted anything, they don't have homes to live in. Um, they're kind of in a, a, a very stressful situation. They came back uh, wanting to rebuild the temple, but they found that there's really nothing to take care of themselves, and so they have this decision that they're going to make, and this psalm talks about it. Do we eat the grain now and be satisfied, or do we sow it? that we might reap much more in the future. So this is what it, how it goes. It says, When the Lord brought back the captives, ones from Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. <clears throat> so there's this, this thing that's taken place. They've been set free. Captive for 70 years, many of these people were probably born in captivity. And all of a sudden, one day, as the word of God states, they're free. And they not only were made free, they were given provision, they were given authority, and they were given protection to go back and to rebuild the temple and to begin the worship of the one true God. So this is the, the idea. It says, we were like those who dream. Does a dream come true? There was, you know, this, is an, this is only greater than what we could have come up with in our own mind. And as they're on their way, they're, they're shouting, they're rejoicing, and the nations are saying, the Lord has done great things. Um, I don't think they meant that in a good way. Because we see that the minute they get there, these nations just want to persecute and ridicule and keep them from doing anything. So they're not happy about this. There's something that they cannot deny about it. But the minute that the, the children of Israel get back into the land, all the nations around persecute. And there's just this desire for those that are following God's will, that are following God's law, that all the nations around Still to this day, even in Israel that is not following the will of God, everyone wants to persecute them. Just this desire that they have. And the people notice the Lord has done great things and we are glad. And they make this request, restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. And it's this idea that as they're sowing, their tears are watering the landscape. They're hungry. I can only imagine what it would be like, you know, I take Kathy and my two boys and we truck, you know, a thousand miles across this, this rugged terrain to get to a place that's still in ruins, destroyed. And everyone is hungry. You have the grain. Do you feed them now or do you sow it for the future? 
the same question we have today. God has put all of these things in our possession. Do we feast on it now, or do we sow it for the future? So what the question is, it says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a guarantee. If you do this, this will happen. It's the same guarantee we have. If we're willing to live like this for the Son of Man's sake, there is a blessing, there is rejoicing in the future. It's guaranteed. Are we willing to commit to that, or is it more important that we satisfy ourselves? This is the idea of renewing our minds. We call, as Nate Bramson always says, we call blessings cursings. And we call the cursings blessings. We call being poor a curse. He calls it a blessing. We call being rich a blessing. He calls it a woe or a curse. It's time to renew our minds and how we're going to approach these things. <clears throat> Turn back to Luke chapter 6 and we'll finish with this portion. There's a direct parallel being made between the prophets of old and the false prophets of old. The, the prophets of old that were true prophets of God were poor. They were those that wept. Uh, they were those that were hungry. And they were those that were hated. Um, nobody, nobody likes a prophet that's living. Everybody likes a dead prophet. Everybody likes to remember, oh, this guy was a great man once upon a time, a great man for our people. But they hated him during the time that they were there. Um, it's the same way with the Lord Jesus. Everybody wants to talk about now how great the Lord Jesus was, but in the time that he was there, they hated him. It's just the way it goes. So if we, if we do these things, we are like the true prophets of old, spreading the word of God. <clears throat> and it says later, um, Woe to you, in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So there's this comparison. Are we like the prophets of old, or are we like false prophets? This is the question that we have to ask ourselves. In our own minds, we have a certain belief of what we are. But if we line our life up with this passage here, do we look like a false prophet or a true prophet? That's what we have to, to think about. As we've considered these many messages, they're, they're weighty messages. They're these ideas that, that cause us to think um, there should be a time where maybe we should spend all night in prayer and see what the Lord would have us do. And what we notice is that <clears throat> those that do live up to these things, that do do these things, they are happy people. People that live for the Lord, that live for the Lord according to his word, you would think that they would be angry and bitter and upset, but when you talk to them, they are the happiest, most fulfilled people you'll ever meet. Because they know that they are not living for today. They are living for what is to come. Do we find ourselves living for today or do we find ourselves living for what is to come? If not, it's, it's, a, it's a renewing of our mind. If we came in tonight thinking that what God wanted for us was to just be um, rich and full and laughing, um, 
and loved by all? We just need to change our way of thinking. And as we change our way of thinking, we're going to notice that it's easier to understand what God's will is for us. Because if not, we're, we're going with this two-soul approach of we think this is what God wants, but we don't understand anything about what God wants. And it was this idea that we talked about this morning with, with those Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, a misunderstanding of the word of God and a misunderstanding that led to doubt and then to pride. Um, we like to be very prideful about these things, um, especially in the United States. Of, of being well off, of being self-sufficient, of, of being able to decide for ourselves. Everything that the scripture teaches is different than that. One of the things to point out <clears throat> is that the Lord Jesus was willing to do all of these things that we would be saved. We're willing to do these things because of all that Jesus has done for us. And when we think about Jesus has done for us, we have to remind ourselves all that we've been forgiven of. Uh, the, when we start to disobey, when we start not to live up to what the Lord has for us, it's because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. And there's this lack of love that comes into place. So to remind you this evening, the Lord Jesus knew everything about you. All of the sin that you would commit. All of the things that you would do. And yet he loved you. The Lord Jesus, understanding that he would pay for every sin that you committed, even the ones that you don't even know about, the ones that you commit on a daily basis that you haven't actually figured out that it's sin yet, he would pay for every single one. He would do it even though you were ignorant of his suffering for you. He would shed his blood that you might go free. He would be risen again to give you proof and he would ascend and be a high priest that would intercede for you every moment of every day. And in all of these things, he just wants you to trust him and have faith in him that this is what's right. Do you want to be happy? Then this is what we have to do. Close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for what you've given to us we thank you for the words of your son, and Father, we confess that perhaps we have been living complete opposite to what your word has spoken. We ask that you would be gracious and merciful as you always are. We ask that in all of these things, you would direct us and lead us and guide us, that we would encourage one another, that we would love one another, that in all of these things, Father, our minds would be renewed, that we wouldn't approach the scriptures to get what we want from it, but, Father, to get from you what we need from it. We do ask that you would help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.